Well, before I read the text, I'm going to take you into my own story very briefly uh, because I think I can do it in a way that helps us understand this text and, and set up the sermon a bit. I, I don't share it to, to be the hero of my story or illustration. It's quite the opposite. Uh, it was probably over 30 years ago that this little story happened, and I remember it though, uh, as though it were yesterday. Her eyes pierced me. I can see her face as though it were yesterday because she looked right through me. I had never seen such anger in her eyes in my life. No, this is not a story of my wife. <laughs> She's never looked at me like that. No, it was a girl I knew in college, and we were just friends. At least that's what I thought. We went to a few classes together. We went to the same church together. We would carpool when we had a break from college. And one day she came up to me, and she was seething. And her eyes pierced me, and they looked right through me. And she said, practically frothing at the mouth, I am so mad at you. And I was taken aback, and I said, what did I do? I was scared. And she said, you did nothing. I, was, I didn't feel very relieved. And she said, that's why I'm mad, because you did nothing. And I was still confused. It seems that we were on two different pages. We understood our friendship differently. I understood us just to be friends. She explained that she saw something different in the friendship, that she misinterpreted things. She said she had begun to see the times together as more than friendship. She thought that there was something going on, that there was something more than that. She started having visions of happily ever after. And I looked at her and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. It's been said that guys can be thick-headed and dense. I'm one of those. I have to admit, I had no clue. And that's what made her mad. That's what disappointed her. And so she said, I'm sorry. I, I feel, she said, I'm sorry. I need to ask your forgiveness because it's wrong to have this hard attitude. And uh, I said, uh, forgiven. Whew. Wow. I'm so glad that's over with. Not the friendship, although I have no idea where she's at today. But, you know, it ended fine. But, you know, isn't it amazing how two people who are friends can misunderstand each other? You know that, don't you? People that care about each other and really start out as just friends can easily get on two different pages of the same newspaper. We know that. Human beings misunderstand each other all the time. Even people who have similar interests and similar commitments to, to the same things. And here's, here's the kicker. Difficulties, relational difficulties or life difficulties in general, if they're not corrected, can lead to big disillusionments in our lives. They truly can. You know, there are times in your life when trusted friends will hurt you. There are events in your life that may seem to have conspired against you. Maybe illness has set in or loneliness has overtaken you. Perhaps a spiritual dryness is something you've experienced lately. And in such times, a couple of things can happen. Your faith life can deepen in those times or your heart can harden. You can find a richer experience of faith, or you can retreat and insulate yourself in something of a cocoon and retreat from everything and say, just leave me alone. I want to be alone, and I'm hurting. You know, if you're still wondering whether or not your decision to follow Jesus 
would cost you something. <laughs> Let me tell you, it will make your life more difficult. <laughs> if you didn't know that, I'm going to tell you that today unequivocally. Following Jesus will bring new challenges, and I think I'm telling you, most of us today, things we accepted a long time ago. Prosperity preachers won't tell you that, but the Bible will. It won't hold that truth back from you. A long time ago, a preacher from another generation named Alexander McLaren, back, he lived back in 1826 until 1910. He said, if we are obedient to Christ, there will be plenty of storms. There will be danger and difficulty and weariness and exposure and anxiety and dread and sadness. And in those moments, it's tempting for us as human beings to withdraw, to cocoon, to, to get hard, to get callous. It's not easy to keep going or to press back out there in, in our faith life and to, to, go, to, go in, to go deeper. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were challenged by a king speaking of examples from the Old Testament, to bow down and worship an image of a king, they could have done the comfortable, safe thing and said, well, in our heart of hearts, we know that Jehovah is the only one true God, so we'll bow down just to go along, to get along, but we'll know that we're only going to worship the God in heaven, so we'll just go along to get along, not really giving our true worship to this statue. But they couldn't do it. They said, no, we're not comfortable prostrating ourselves in front of a, a statue of a phony God. And so it's going to cost us something. It might cost us our lives, but we're not going to bow down. So they stood when hundreds and perhaps thousands of people bowed down. And so they were thrown into a furnace. And they said, even if our God doesn't save us, we are not bowing down to a, a human deity, a human, a human who wants to call himself a God. You know, when Daniel was told, you can't, you can't pray to anybody but to the king, the human king, for a month, and if you're caught, it's going to mean death, he could have said, well, I love God, but he'll understand if I don't pray to him, at least not publicly or openly or, you know, with in, where anybody can see me. He'll understand that if I just kind of go discreetly here, incognito with praying. No, he, he said, I'm going to pray as I've always prayed. I, I need it too much. <laughs> and it cost him. It, he wound up in a lion's den. God intervened and protected him there. In the New Testament, a, a young man named Stephen uh, could have said, man, these people are going to hurt me if I give a great testimony for Jesus. He knew, he knew it was going to cost him something to speak up for Jesus Christ. He could have said, to the religious authorities, you know, uh, yeah, he could have believed in his heart Jesus is the Messiah. But he could have said, you know, uh, you're right. Uh, this Jesus was an imposter. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah, he, he deserved to be crucified. And I'm sure his, his disciples were all imposters. And that's just, a, that's just all a hoax. And walked away and kind of kept his faith hidden in his life. And he could have lived. He could have kept himself comfortable. He could have kept himself alive. But instead, it, he resisted them. He stood them. He stood his ground and he said, no, this Jesus that you've crucified is Lord and Messiah. And he's the one that you should have believed on. And we're right to put our faith in him. And it says that they ground their teeth at him in anger. And God didn't save him. It cost him his life. 
And then it, 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 they protested. At the very last thing he saw, he said, look. Before his life ebbed away, he said, look, I, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that just infuriated him more and more. Cost him his life. In our text today, as we come to Mark chapter 6, we find the disciples being pushed off the shore by Jesus out onto the Sea of Galilee. Now, they've had a pretty amazing day of, of ministry opportunity. Uh, you were with us last week. We just looked at the feeding of the 5,000, which we said is much more than 5,000 because that says in the text that there were 5,000 men. There were women. There were children. So we have conservatively 15 to 18,000 people that were present. The disciples had in their hands the, the broken fish and the broken bread that Jesus had miraculously produced. And they had, so they had seen the, the miracle, the wonder-working power of God. And, and they could have perhaps, you know, to stay comfortable, said, hey, Jesus, we don't really want to go on the next assignment right now. We just want to take a break. This was amazing what you did. You were teaching. You were healing. And now you produced all this food. And we just want to linger a while and uh, kind of bask in the accolades of what it's like to be... Uh, to be co-laborers with you. We want to tell Jesus stories to all the crowds because they're just enamored with you. They want to make you king, you know. And we, want to, we, we kind of want to just gloat in the moment. And we want to be comfortable. We'd like to lay our heads tonight on a Galilean pillow. That would be comfortable. It would have been disobedience. Because he puts them in a boat. And within a few hours, they'd be facing a storm. That's not very comfortable. Let's look at the text. That takes us into the text. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. And, and underneath that word immediately in the Greek word, it's a very strong, emphatic verb. He really commandeered them. There's a great emphasis. He got them in the boat. And Jesus himself, we believe, pushed the boat off. And we read in the other gospel writers' accounts of the same story, the reason he did that so quickly, so abruptly, and I'm speaking specifically of the gospel of John's account of the same story, is the, the reason underneath it, context is everything, is because the people, the crowds, the multitudes, wanted to make Jesus king. Mark leaves that detail out here. After the feeding of all these people, people said, whoa, 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 messianic fervor, it has settled in. Let's make him king right now so he can kick out the Romans. Jesus said, uh-uh-uh, I'm getting these guys out of here, and I'm going up to pray. That's the fuller context. Immediately, Jesus takes charge of the situation. He makes his disciples get into the boat. There's an urgency here. And he goes, he made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismisses the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Not time for him to be made king and messiah over Israel. So guys, out. I'm going away, going away to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. These were experienced fishermen, by the way. You know that. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, now they've been out here for hours, because you know how, what the fourth watch of the night is? It's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch of the night. So they left in the evening. They have been out here for over six hours, maybe as many as 10 hours. They're experienced fishermen. The sail's down. They are rowing and rowing, and they're getting nowhere, and they're in the middle of the lake. It says that Jesus sees them. Well, it's night. How does he see them? From the northern shores of Galilee on a hillside when they're in the middle of the lake and it's pitch dark. How does he see them? Oh, wait a minute. That's not hard. Supernaturally. Okay about the fourth watch of the night, he doesn't just see them. 
he comes to them. Now, if you think back to where we've been in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 4, we had another nature miracle. Jesus was in the boat with them that time on the Sea of Galilee, when he was, and he was sleeping in the back of the boat, and we had a storm that came up in that case in, on the same sea, probably the same boat, we don't know, uh, probably. And they woke him up and they said, Master, don't you care if we perish? There's a storm overtaking us, and it took a lot to, to shake up a Galilean fisherman. Because they were, they were used to this. They were used to the waves and the, the, rug, the rigor of that, of that lake. They were used to that. But it was, it was overtaking them. They couldn't keep the cold bilge water out of that boat. And, it was, and here again, they're in a bad way. And he's not even in the boat this time. But he sees them. Now he comes to them. Interesting text. Interesting way it's, it's worded here. He's walking on the sea. It says he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, these are eight-foot waves, they see him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and we get our word phantom from the Greek word underneath that, phantasm. They thought it was a ghost, and it, it terrified him. What's really interesting, they were more afraid after they saw him than before they saw him. It's kind of ironic. God shows up, and they're more afraid than they were before he's there, when God the Son shows up. It says they cried out. Believe me, they were terrified of him. That's we can't overstate this. For they saw him and they were terrified. It's interesting how, how upset they were when they saw him. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. And the English translations don't render that as clear as it was really stated. He gave them the same statement. It's, it's, it's reconstructed in, in the exact same way that it was stated when Moses uh, when God identified himself to Moses in the Old Testament as Yahweh. It's basically, I am. That's what he said. He said, take courage, I am. What does that remind you of? When God identified himself to Moses. Who are you, Lord? I am. That's what Jesus said. Take courage, I am. In other words, you're in good hands. God's standing in front of you. You'll be okay. I who made the sea can walk on it. That's not a problem. You'll be all right. I'm not a phantom. It's I. I am standing before you. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. But here's, here's an interesting point that Mark is making. Mark's so honest with us. You and I want to say, well, they were jumping for joy, right? Well, listen, no. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They had just seen hours earlier the miracle working power of Jesus, but their hearts had been calloused and hardened. They did not fully appreciate that he was yet the son of God. That was something that took time to develop fully in their minds. It truly did. It was hard for a Jew, a monotheistic Jew, to fully wrap his or her mind around the idea that God, who is one, could be manifested in his son. God, who is one, is also God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity was an was a, was a incongruent concept to, to a modern Jew, still is today. And so this was a profound thing for them to fully comprehend, even though they had seen Jesus do some mighty things. Well, we'll come back to that here in, in just a moment. But we're talking here in the message simply about the challenges that as we follow Jesus today, as people found out from, from the days of our Lord when he first came, there are crosses to bear. There are there's challenges, of course. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who challenged the Nazis, who, who wound up in a, in a prison because of his, 
his disrespect for the Nazi propaganda, who said, who said this, the cross is laid upon every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Think about that. The things that we want, we have to surrender and say, not my will, Lord. What's your will? Think about that in a hundred different ways. You and I are doing that, aren't we? Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What a statement from Bonhoeffer. And he lived that out and gave his life as a martyr. There are costs and risks to following Jesus with your life and mine. It's good to remember that. But there are, so there are opportunity costs, but there are so many blessings as well. And before we go further in the message today, I want you to, to see something so significant from this text. It's this, Jesus prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for us. As you look here at 646, Mark 646, to go back to the text, it says that after he had taken leave of them, the disciples, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, Mark doesn't give us the, the prayer list, the Jesus' prayer sheet, but we know that he had the disciples on his mind. We know that. And we know that they would have been included in his prayers. He was thinking of them, and he saw them. It goes on in the text to say that he sees what their situation. And we know from other scripture in the New Testament, we know clearly, unequivocally, that Jesus prays for his people. Romans 8.34, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? What does it mean to you, friend, to think about this today, that Jesus is praying for you in your struggle right now, whatever your struggle is? What does that mean to you? I want you to please to think about it. He is praying for you. He, he sees your struggles. Whatever doubt you're dealing with right now, or whatever pain, or whatever loss, or whatever fear you're facing right now, what, is it, it, what does it mean to think about that? Does it comfort you? D does it comfort you at all to, to know that he's praying for you? He sees it, and he's praying about it. In Luke 22, 31 to 32, our Lord said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you've come back to, to your senses, when you've come back to me, when you've turned back to follow me again, then strengthen your brothers. Now, he's in there with you. Jesus is in there. He's in the fight with you. He's in the storm with you. He, he's watching your situation, and he's there to intercede for you. And think, think about the text here. As the disciples, before Jesus showed up and came out there on the lake, could they see him up there? He could see them, right? But could they see him up there on the hill? No. Four or five miles inland, could they see him up on the hill on northern Galilee? As they're out there on the boat and they're rowing and they're exhausted, they're weary. They couldn't see him, but he could see them. And he came to them. He prayed for them, and he came to them. 
when you and I are rowing in the storm and we're weary and we're tired and Jesus doesn't seem to be in the midst of our situation and we, we are so tempted to say, God, have you turned a blind eye to me? I don't feel your presence. I don't sense you care about me. I don't know what happened. Did I do something wrong? You know, it's in that moment that he is watching you from afar and he's, he's, going, he's praying for you and he's going to come to you. It might be the fourth watch in the night, later than you expect, but right on time. And he's going to take care of you. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to get ahead of myself here a little bit. You're going to come to a deeper place in your faith than you've ever been. That's what happened to those guys. You're going to be at a new place. Because you see, where, you see, it says that they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves. It says that their hearts were, had been calloused. They were a bit hardened. It's an interesting statement because that's often the statement that the Bible makes about the Pharisees, that they had hard hearts, calloused hearts. The Bible here is making it about the disciples, that their hearts were, were calloused. They needed another deepening experience. They needed that storm. And so God, Jesus gave it to them. He pushes the boat off. They didn't need to be making Jesus the hero and all the stuff that they would have done. He says, nope, you're back out here. You need another storm, and here it comes. And then he comes to them, and the story ends with them worshiping him. Matthew's gospel, recording the same event, the same, the same event of Jesus walking in the water, says that he got into the boat, their hearts went from hardness to worship, and they said, truly, you are the Son of God. Wow. Do you see how our perspective can change? How hard times, they can, they can soften us, they can harden us, but if we, if we accept them as a part of the life of discipleship, they can push us deeper to see Jesus as he comes to us, as he changes us, as he grows us. He's with us in those struggles, friends. Even when, even when we do not see our Lord in our struggle, he sees us, he prays for us, and he comes to us. Oh, let's lock on to that truth because it's right here. It's right there in the scripture. Even when we do not see him in our struggle, he sees us, he prays for us, and he comes to us. It may be the fourth watch in the night, but he comes. And he says, I got this. I got you. You're not, you're not going to drown here. This storm is not going to take you down. I, I'm going to show you myself. Fear not. I am. And you're going to turn up and look and you're going to worship him. And you're going to be in a better place spiritually than you'd have ever been without that storm. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly give you three keys to keep in the focus. God's faithfulness is greater than God's faithfulness is greater than my doubts. Your doubts, my doubts. The disciples had their doubts. We have our doubts. We haven't changed. People haven't changed. Uh, you know, in Mark 1, 1, you don't have to go there, but, you know, we started out this study, obviously, with Mark 1. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of this whole book says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When Mark started writing this gospel, he summarizes it, and he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I want to say to you today that though he's explaining right there in that sentence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the disciples didn't understand that right away. They came to believe that he was the Son of God. That took time. They doubted it. Many times that he was the son of God. It took time. At the end of this story we're in, according to Matthew's version of it, they said, 
truly, truly, you are the Son of God. See, it was a movement, a progression of faith, of growth to understand who he was. There are doubts along the way in our faith life as we come to know who Jesus is. They didn't connect all the dots, nor do we. We have our doubts and our, our questions and our moments of, of, of amazement and, and, and discouragement. We don't always understand about the loaves, about things that the Lord has done in our lives. So God is patient with us in our doubts. He's frankly patient with us when we sin. Aren't you, aren't you glad for that? I, I can't tell you uh, how, how glad I am. Um, he's very patient with us. The Bible says that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. It says that it is because his mercies are new that, that we're not consumed. Because he is a, he's a merciful God that we're not consumed. The story we're looking at here today, of course, is preceded. It's connected to the one ahead of it, and that is the, the, the feeding of the 5,000. And if you just look at that briefly, as we looked at it last week, so I won't take much time with it. Do you remember how snide, kind of snarky, the disciples got? You remember when Jesus landed on the shore and it says that there were these great multitudes of people? And you remember that it said that Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them. It says that he looked at them and he looked at them as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. And it says that he immediately began to teach them. And then other gospel writers says that he, he healed many. And then he turned to the disciples who wanted to send them away and, he, and, and, get them, and he said, no. He said, give them something to eat. And there were two different viewpoints. Jesus, the good shepherd, says, we're going to serve them. We're going to bless them. We're even going to feed them. And the disciples are saying, let's get rid of them. Let's, let's move them on. Send them away. Two different perspectives. And then when Jesus challenges them and says, give them something to eat, they get kind of snarky. I'm not, I'm not overstating that. Uh, verse 37, he says, you give them something to eat. Hear the tone of what they said. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And they didn't have any money. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Now I want to tell you, their tone was not only full of sarcasm, it bordered on mutiny. Can you imagine telling the Lord, in essence, what do you want us to do about this? That was their attitude. Saying that to God, of course, they didn't understand. He's God. He's not just a Jewish rabbi that can do great things. He's not just this miracle man. Who are you talking to, guys? But that was their spirit. What do you think we should do about this? Are you kidding us? That was their attitude. He could have just said, you are fools, you know. But of course, he doesn't do that. He doesn't talk to them like that. He, he entreats them. How many loaves do you have? Do you see his restraint? Do you see his gentleness? How many loaves do you have? Well, we got this kid's sack lunch. That'll work. <laughs> and then he takes it and does what he does. And they go, huh, okay. Oh, we still want to get out of here. <laughs> you know, their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand the lobes, you know. She says, they need a, they need a storm. <laughs> They're not getting this. <laughs> Off they go to the next lesson, the next object lesson. Do you, see, do you see Jesus' patience? I hope you see it in your life. He's so patient. God is faithful to us. He's greater. His faithfulness is greater than our, our unbelief, our doubts, our, our sins. You know, in, uh, in Matthew's account of this same story, that we're in here today. We, uh, Mark doesn't add it for reasons we don't know why, but as Jesus comes to the boat, Peter wants to come out. He says, Jesus, if that's you, call me, beckon me to come out of the boat and I will come to you on the water. You know the story. And he says, come, Peter. Peter steps out of the boat and he gets nervous. The wind starts to scare him and he starts to sink and, and Jesus grabs him and he says to, he says to him, 
Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Peter really represented all the disciples in that they all doubted, right? They all had problems with unbelief. But yet, Jesus took, took care of them anyway. And that's how it is with us. Despite my unbelief, God takes care of me anyway. I'm so grateful. Despite the smallness of my faith some days, God doesn't throw me away and dis dispense with me. He uses me anyway. He can take my little bit of faith and use me anyway. And in, and in Matthew's account of this story, it says they got, Jesus and Peter got into the boat. And those in the boat, it says, worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And so that, that storm ended with such a, a beautiful, deepening experience so let's apply it. Today's storm, friend, is a stepping stone in your life to a deeper commitment to Jesus, a bigger revelation of, of who he is. God delivers us from our doubts. He moves us to a deeper commitment. And let me just tag that with one more thought. There will always be new risks when we decide to follow our Lord, but the rewards will be greater than the risks. The rewards will be greater than the risks. Great will be the rewards. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you, Lord, that you watch us in this life, we're never alone. We may feel alone, but we're never alone, truly. You're watching us, you're praying for us, and you're coming to us in the midst of the storm, and delivering us to a deeper place of life with you, of richness, of depth, of joy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your, your word is clear, you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. You are with us always, even to the end of the age. So may we take courage today in whatever storm might be trying to hit our, knock at our door. Might we take courage knowing there might be a storm tomorrow, but you, you know that already. No storm is bigger than our creator. And we thank you for the hope that's ours in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.